This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 13, Episode 29. This is Writing Excuses, Iconic Heroes. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Valin. I'm Dan. I'm Conan. <laughs> All right. How, Conan. By Crom. <laughs> Conan. I'm the one my... with a pewter goblet. <laughs> Dan is literally drinking out of a pewter goblet right now. Um, tell us what we mean by this. What is an iconic hero? Okay. I got the term from my good friend Jim Zub, one of the hardest working writers in comics, who described iconic heroes as different from epic heroes to differentiate between characters like Conan the Barbarian, and Aragorn. Aragorn has a character arc with a beginning and a middle and an end. And Conan, while technically has a biography with a beginning and a middle and an end, you look at Conan's stories and he's kind of always the same guy. And there are a lot of characters who fall into this category. One of the reasons that iconic is such a great word to describe this kind of character is that they often show up in long series. You've got... Conan, you've got James Bond, you've got Nancy Drew, and they are the same person in every book and in every story, and there's lots of stories about them. Now, we want to mention that a lot of the iconic heroes we will be talking about <laughs> coincide with an era in storytelling <laughs> um, that was a pretty sexist and racist era. If you read a Conan book now, you'll be like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. James Conan Bond and James example. Bond. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I don't think that that is part of iconic heroes. I think it just, they were popular at the same time that yeah. racism was super popular. Um, so. And so we are not going to address that other than this mention in this podcast. But next month we'll be digging into how to deal with weighty topics and things like that in, uh, with your character. So we're going to shove that off till then. Right now we're just going to talk about why would you write a character like this? We We've talked about how great character arcs are and how awesome they are and why we like them. Why have a character with no arc? Um, for me, the iconic character serves as a, a, a linchpin of familiarity for the reader. They know that they are stepping into a, uh, a they know they're stepping into a, an Hercule Poirot mystery, okay? Hercule Poirot is not going to die in this book. He's also not going to change significantly in this book, but anybody else (laughs) could fall victim to the murderer. uh, And that's, uh, for for readers, I find, I mean, for me, I I can't speak for all readers, that's really comforting. I can hang on to this one thing, go, yeah, sure, go Mm -hmm. ahead and develop and threaten and whatever, all of these other people— just give me something to hang on to that is constant and familiar through the story. Well, and it lets the reader know exactly what they're getting. You know, uh, I mentioned Nancy Drew earlier. Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys had very similar stories, but they tackled their problems in a different way. And if you wanted to know what kind of story you were reading, Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys or Encyclopedia Brown or Sherlock Holmes or Poirot, uh, you're still getting a mystery, but you're getting a very specific flavor of it that... I, you presumably you love because that's why you're reading it. And one of the things that I 
I, I see in a lot of people is that there's some people who that fits their personality and they go to a restaurant and they always order the same thing because they know that that's what they're going to get. And for me, when I'm reading, sometimes what I want to read depends on my mood. Mm -hmm. And so if I am in the mood for something in particular, I love going to Iconic Heroes because I know exactly what I'm going to get. You know, in our pre-podcast discussion of this, we brought up several Terry Pratchett characters. And while there Mm. are Pratchett characters who have arcs, most notably Vimes, most Pratchett characters are kind of the same thing. They are an icon that then he can use for satire. And that satire is really fun. Um, I also think that comic books we discussed use Mm -hmm. this a lot because they don't know where which issue you're going to be picking up. But if you know who Wolverine is or who Wonder Woman is, you can generally pick up an issue and read them. Now, I'm sure there are some comic book fans out there listening and saying, no, 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 no. There are huge <laughs> character arc development cycles, and there are. There absolutely are. Yeah. Um, and particularly in the mainline comics, um, they're, they're, they're pretty slow changes, but there are changes. One thing that I think kind of notes an iconic hero in our um, current <clears throat> storytelling zeitgeist or whatever is lots of reboots back to the character's origin. Um, the And... Comic books do this a lot. They'll be like, all right, here is a set of, of iconic, you know, Wolverine comics. We're going to start over again and do this reboot because mm-hmm. everybody expects Wolverine to be one thing. But maybe in the mainline comics, he's changed from not being that anymore. Then they run into this thing where people are like, I thought I knew who Wolverine was. I wanted an iconic yeah. Wolverine story. But now he's, you know. You know. If you look at Matram Coffin mm-hmm. in the Wheel of Time series— um, he is representative of uh, an iconic, you know, archetypical uh, sort of character. But if you pick him in any given book and run a silhouette test on him, he changes. Yeah. He changes from book to book. Uh, you never, with a few exceptions when they were experimenting, you never have that problem with Superman or Batman or Spider-Man. You pick up any book— and you are pretty comfortable with who they are in that moment, even if they are having a, you know, a Planet Hulk-type series that explores yeah. some aspect of their personality. Let me ask you this, Howard, because one time you brought this up, and I thought it was a really interesting way to talk about Iconic Heroes. You talked about Mad Max, and you may have done it even on the podcast, where Mad Max is almost like a character in other people's stories because he doesn't change. He shows up and he kind of represents the old gunslinger or whatever that will show up. All the world changes around him and then he rides off into the sunset. Mike Underwood, uh, uh, I call him Mike Underwood authorially. I think it's Michael R. Underwood. um, Wrote a short story called There Will Always Be a Max um, in which we explore the icon of Mad Max. But yeah, the, uh, and I think it's, is it George Romero? Is that? No. No, no, he's no. the zombie guy. It's the. I don't remember the Mad Max guy. I can't remember. Uh, we'll... George Miller. Yes. Okay. Maybe. <sighs> Gonna have to look it up. Anyway, the director was talking about the latest uh, Mad Max movie, Fury Road. George Miller. Uh, George Miller. And, uh, and said um, you know, people will, will ask sometimes about the canon of Mad Max. And he said, 
at this point, Mad Max. Max is a character who appears in other people's stories. Uh, he's, he's an icon. He's a legend. He's a myth. Um, and when you look at him in that way, you can tell all kinds of stories in that apocalyptic wasteland where Max shows up and does heroic things and helps and is gone at the end of the story, and the people who have changed are the people whose lives he interacted with, the people he saved, the people he killed, the other people he killed, the people he may have actually <laughs> killed. Um, <laughs> Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Let's stop for our book of the week. Dan, you got this. Murder on the Orient Express. Yes. So we mentioned earlier Hercule Poirot. And uh, we wanted to, t- I think I just said that with this Mexican accent. Sorry, I don't speak French. Um, so we want to talk about him as a uh, as an iconic hero. He is one of, you know, Agatha Christie's big detective that she wrote all her, or many of her books about. And he never changes, although everyone around him does. We know that he will always live, although everyone around him might die. Except for in one book. Except for in the one. Yes. We don't but, talk which, about that Which one. was publicized and popularized as. As the one. Well, and that mm-hmm. happened to Holmes, too. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Murder on the Orient Express is arguably his most famous book, and it has the movie that's out now and an older movie. Um, it is a really great and classic um, murder mystery story set on a train with a very colorful cast of characters. Um, at this point, the story is like 70 years old, something like that. So it's it's hard to say whether spoiling it or not is worth the time, but... I won't, in case you've never read it, because it's well worth reading. Okay. So let me ask you this. Um, how do you write a character who's interesting, who does not have an arc or an, or anything like that? Can they have an internal conflict and still be an iconic hero? Um, what, what does this mean in regards to having the character engage in conflict? Well, so Mad Max is a really good example of this because he is a character built around conflict. Um, and in most of his stories after the first one, um, his con- his inner conflict is that he doesn't fit in anywhere. And all three of the rest of the Mad Max movies are about him showing up, trying in various ways to become a part of a community and eventually realizing that he can't and leaving. And so he doesn't change as a person, but there is always that central problem at his core. Yeah, if we look at the Bruce Banner-Hulk thing, that is a, that's, an, that's a conflict. That's a, mm-hmm. an external conflict that manifests an internal conflict, right? Um, and that's the same conflict every time, but there is that conflict, and that's why the character's been so fascinating over many, many, many years. So conflict, yes. 
how do you make them interesting? Well, I think that when you have when you're writing an iconic character, the reader is going in with certain expectations, and I think that the trick is to introduce that iconic character to different situations, and then see how that character is going to react to those situations. The thing that I like about writing an iconic character is that it's in the same world, so you don't have to recreate it, but you're not writing a series. So you, so anyone or any reader could pick up book one, book 31, and it's not dependent on yeah. whether you've yeah. read the mm-hmm. previous 29 books or however many there are in a series. So that's, I think that it's just defining what this character is. The character can have internal conflict, but we need to see what that internal conflict does in the situation yeah. every time. And I think you've really hit on it, which is to to throw them at different situations. You know, And I think that's one of the reasons that iconic characters tend to be series characters, because I want to see how is Solomon Kane going to react to this threat versus to this threat. How is Alex Cross going to solve this crime as opposed to this crime? And the flavor around him changes, and what's fascinating is watching him react differently in every situation. Yeah, in previous episodes, um, we've talked about uh, tri-fail cycles and how with a lot of the characters who get character arcs, your tri-fail cycle is that you know, you're failing because uh, your area of competent- competency is not where you are being tested and you are going to grow and develop in order to accomplish these things. Tri-fail cycles for iconic heroes are most often cases where they don't yet know the enemy's weakness. They haven't yet solved the problem. And so the things they are trying with their competencies are not being applied correctly. Uh, you know, Conan never becomes a better swordsman. James Bond never becomes a better shot. Hercule Poirot never becomes a better detective. They just get more information as the story unfolds. Uh, and so, so for me, a tri-fail cycle for an iconic hero... Um, in order to, or the interest in that story is the reveals that show how the trifail cycle is going to play out. You know, for me, one of the tensions in writing or reading a character like this is you will occasionally have them, they will learn a lesson um, in the course of the story, but you know that the reset button is always going to get hit, that that character will rarely, if ever, reference that lesson um, mm-hmm. and you run into this happening, I feel like, in, in certain book series where people don't know that they're doing this. Like, they're used to this storytelling archetype, which happens a lot in television shows, um, happens a lot in films, that, like, each of the three Thor movies that have come out, I've enjoyed. But they are, like, their own little microcosms by their own directors, and they don't really reference each other, and they tend to throw away anything that happened in the previous ones. Um, and this sort of thing can make for a really self-contained, enjoyable piece, but then the whole can get a little frustrating. So while we're talking about this, and especially as we talk about superheroes, I keep remembering an essay that I read years ago about Peter Parker and calling him uh, the superhero that never grew up. And... The, the point they were making is that while we are totally fine with Bruce Wayne being the same person for 80 years or however long it's been, Peter Parker, because he was a teenager, 
which is a period of life defined by change, the fact that he is still the same feels wrong to us. And when you look at comics, he is the one that has gone through more permutations as more writers try to justify the fact that they grew up with him and now they're adults and they have kids and they have lives and dumb Peter Parker's still this single guy dating the same girl and he hasn't grown up. One of the issues here is that, and it's a, fundamentally it's about money, Uh, Spider-Man is an incredibly valuable brand Mm -hmm. because the crisis of the teen who has a superpower is an incredible wish fulfillment story and it also allows you to explore fun social issues for kids and that is always going to be valuable to Marvel Comics. They can't grow out of that and stop making money at that level. And so- They've hit the reset button At a high level, at a high level, Spider-Man and Superman and Tony the Tiger and the Pillsbury (laughs) Doughboy are all the same thing. They are a brand that can't be allowed to change too much Mm -hmm. or they'll stop making money. Well, the point I wanted to make, though, is that Peter Parker does stand out to me as particularly problematic because... Because it's a YA story. Yeah, well, and his brand is yeah. in that space of turmoil where you are expected after five years to have emerged a different yes. person. He is he, a character who is supposed to change and grow who can't for commercial reasons. So that's maybe just a pitfall to keep in mind uh-huh. if you want to write an iconic character. Pillsbury Doughboy who never gets put in the oven. <laughs> Man. Never. His right. character arc will never We're get We're running out here. Um, I'm going to say, uh, comic book fans, address your angry emails to Dan and Howard. You betcha. Uh, um, but I'm going to give you some homework. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> you have to roll the R. You got to do it right. Um, all right. Uh, this is something I did uh, about two years ago just for an interesting exercise is I plotted out an Indiana Jones movie because I wanted to see what the beats of an Indiana Jones movie were. And it was partially frustration at the fourth Indiana Jones movie, um, but partially just me trying to figure out how that iconic formula worked. So I had it in my toolbox if I ever wanted to use it. And I sat down and did this. Dan pitched this as homework. And I said, well, I've actually done that. So um, <laughs> yeah, well, I want and you. I was going to say, and I've done this with Star Trek episodes. Mm. So if depending on what property you're familiar with. Yeah. So Go pick one. Uh, I suggest Indiana Jones, but whatever you want, plot one out and have a look at what the key um, touchstones of one of those books or movies it is. And uh, I'm not sure if my verb. No, that was there. the right. That was the right verb. Um, see, just see if you can find something that is common to almost all of the stories told with that character, um, and build out a plot of your own doing that. This has been running excuses. 15 minutes long for 10 years now because we never change. Uh, You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. 
They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 